It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From Fox News, it's The Campaign with Brett Baer. Monday, October 12th, the Senate confirmation hearings for Judge Amy Coney Barrett began. Republicans defended Barrett's nomination, praising her record as a constitutional scholar and a judge, while Senate Democrats spoke of their disapproval filling a Supreme Court vacancy so close to the presidential election. With nearly three weeks to go, both candidates are making their last campaign efforts. President Trump headed to a rally in Florida, his first appearance outside of Washington, D.C., since he tested positive for COVID-19. Former Vice President Biden campaigning in Ohio on his Build Back America economic message after extending his advertising in the swing state there. Our socially distant panel is anxiously awaiting to discuss But first, we'll be looking at some of the key swing states in the upcoming 2020 election. Fox News Radio National Correspondent Jared Halperin gives us an update on these closely contested states. President Trump won more than a dozen states four years ago by fewer than a quarter million votes. That includes Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. The Trump campaign picked up those three states with a combined 46 electoral college votes by just 80,000 votes total. Reversing Democratic advantages and the so-called blue wall propelled President Trump to the White House. Four years later, the upper Midwest is again expected to decide the presidency. As both President Trump and Democratic nominee Joe Biden argue they are the better bet for middle-class blue-collar workers. Frankly, I've dealt with guys like Trump my whole life. Guys from the neighborhood I come from would look down on us because we didn't have a lot of money. Your parents didn't go to college. Guys who think they're better than you. Biden made those remarks last month in Milwaukee. But in 2016, President Trump did better with white voters without a college degree than previous Republican nominees had done, topping Clinton by nearly 40 points among that voter bloc. President Trump's message last month in Pittsburgh focused on immigration, law and order, and energy jobs. Last year, I visited the Shell petrochemical plant in Beaver County, Pennsylvania. The largest investment in your state's history, and that was all made possible by our pro-energy policies. Biden has also made Pennsylvania a frequent campaign stop, highlighting his roots in Scranton. Real Clear Politics polling averages give the Democrat a single-digit advantage in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, states that would help both campaigns on a path to 270 electoral votes. Brett? Jared, thanks. We'll start there with our panel, senior Washington correspondent for Politico, Anna Palmer, founding editor at the Washington Free Beacon and AEI resident fellow, Matthew Connetti, and Fox News politics editor, Chris Steierwald. All right, uh, Chris, let's start with this confirmation hearing and and where we think this politically is going. Uh, It seems, obviously, that Republicans have the votes to get Judge Barrett through, barring some major, major thing that happens here. But uh, politically, where, where are we? Joe Biden's uh, luck uh, or ability or whatever it is that has allowed him to keep Democrats in line this cycle uh, seems like, we'll see, seems like it's going to hold through these hearings. Because, of course, with Biden and Kamala Harris, who is right there uh, by video conference uh, from her office, what they need is for this to be about Obamacare, 
They need this to be about Roe versus Wade. They need it to be about the timing of the hearing, but not about Barrett herself. Barrett, a compelling figure, an accomplished mother of seven, and so on and so on. Uh, and the message has gone out very clearly to Democrats. Don't do what you did when she was up for the appellate court and talk about her Roman Catholic faith and other things. Uh, talk about Trump more than Barrett. And if that's what Democrats get out of it, then they figure that they can get out of this tighter ahead. Anna, it is pretty lockstep in the Democratic opening statements that uh, it focuses on Obamacare, the ACA, Affordable Care Act, uh, individual personal stories, heartbreaking stories from each one of the states the senators uh, come from about uh, Obamacare and concerns about it. It's all centers around a case that's going to the Supreme Court November 10th. The case doesn't deal with really the substance of Obamacare, but really about the judicial, uh, whether they can separate one part of the law, and then leave the other part of the law intact. Uh, that nuance is lost in the, the whole opening hearings, but is it politically a smart thing to get all Democrats on the same page here? I mean, I think Democrats have been on the same page around Obamacare for the last couple of cycles, right? It's been a winning message for them. I think you've heard Republicans actually go a little further than normal saying, you know, we, we believe that pre-existing conditions should uh, sh should be covered. Even Senator Ted Cruz, who shut down the government, uh, if we all remember, over this issue, over trying to uh, you know overturn Obamacare. So I, th I think Democrats see healthcare as a winning is issue for them in general this cycle. I think there's a real sense of inevitability about Barrett becoming the next Supreme Court justice. And so they're trying to be as unified and get as many political points as possible. Uh, Matthew, what do you think? Right. It was kind of uh, startling to watch the hearing today. And you had the Republicans talk about Amy Coney Barrett and you had the senators from Indiana introduce her. You had her former dean at Notre Dame just deliver really remarkable um, set of remarks, in my view, about uh, what it meant uh, for uh, her to, to watch Coney Barrett's uh, career unfold. And then you had the Democrats who I mean, for all intents and purposes, Barrett didn't exist. It was a hearing that was entirely about Obamacare. Um, a few of the senators mentioned um, uh, abortion, including Kamala Harris, actually using the word abortion instead of some of the euphemisms that um, Democrats often use to to uh, describe it, um, the procedure. Uh, so it was kind of it was kind of uh, jarring to me just to watch this side by side, especially with Barrett sitting there in her mask, um, kind of looking like a, a prisoner uh, of some kind. Um, but I Although think the mask did give a little cover for any kind of reaction check. That's true. Yeah, that's right. true. Sometimes you saw her eyes. Her eyes did widen at some of the assertions <laughs> made by the Democrats. If you watch really closely, you could see her react. Um, but um, I think if, from the point of view of this nomination, the first day was a good one for uh, the Trump administration. All right, Chris, where are we in this election? We know that Joe Biden in every major poll nationally and in the battlegrounds, um, the key ones, uh, is up or tied, some surprisingly so. Um, and is there something that we're not seeing, or do you think this race is kind of where it has been? Well, I think this race reminds is starting to remind me a lot of 2008, where it seemed like the Republicans were hanging, hanging, hanging in there, in there, in there, down into the fall. We're going to make it. It's going to be interesting. They say we're going to be closer than you think. And then in October, it goes bloop and you feel the bottom drop out. Um, one of the problems Republicans have is there's already millions and millions of votes that have been cast, um, and those aren't undoable. And uh, the, the number of days is short. Uh, the number without a second presidential debate 
the opportunities to change the trajectory are few. Um, I'm not even sure we'll have a third one uh, or what was supposed to be the third one. Uh, so long story short, uh, I feel a, a, a 2008 vibe out there these days. Yeah, and uh, I, you know, we should put the caveat on here that we all thought that in 2016 that Hillary Clinton was going to move on and, and uh, win that election. Um, she didn't. It seems like a different vibe, obviously, we're dealing with an incumbent president uh, and different challenges, especially his COVID-19 di- diagnosis, the dealing with COVID-19 overall across the country and how much that's affected this race. Yeah, I think what's interesting about the Trump administration and really his campaign was their whole theory of the case was to try to act like COVID-19 was over and talk about the economy and how it was going to be a comeback. But they have had a really a big struggle in terms of kind of messaging on COVID-19 and that he is the guy to do the job, even as much as the White House was a super spreader and that he he got it. You know, I think there's been some real questions around, you know, they still haven't released any of his negative tests. He says that he's now immune. Uh, to Chris's point, I feel like some of these polls, nationally, Biden's up 12 points. And even in Florida, where, you know, it's tighter, obviously, it's only three points, but it doesn't feel like there's going to be that October surprise that is going to shift the momentum in Trump's favor. Well, that's the whole thing about October surprises. They're surprises. <laughs> no one expects uh, the Spanish Inquisition. Yeah, I mean, come on, Matthew, to that point, um, is there something that could change the trajectory? Let's assume that there is a third, really second presidential debate. Still, it's late in the game. As Chris mentioned, there's millions and millions and millions of people have already voted. Um, is there anything just big picture that could change the dynamic heading into November 3rd? I think we had plenty of October surprises already in October with uh, yeah. Trump's COVID diagnosis and then the, uh, the first debate being, a, I think, a kind of a debacle for everyone involved. So, you know, the thing that has always been very striking about this race, Brett, is its consistency. The truth is, in these polls, Biden has always led. Um, and uh, another consistent trend in the polls is that Biden leads by a large margin nationally, uh, but by a smaller margin in the states. And I think what the Trump campaign needs to count on is that as we move away from kind of the tumultuous events of the past two weeks, the debate, the diagnosis, the hospital stay, everything surrounding that, um, Trump's approval rating in some of the states, in particular Florida and Pennsylvania, firms up to the point where, um, you know, they can just hope that there's a similar uh, polling error happening now that happened four years ago in the battleground states. And so that really the best case scenario for Trump is eking out an electoral college victory uh, while losing the popular vote by probably a greater margin, a much greater margin indeed, uh, than he lost it in 2016. Yeah, Chris, on that front, you know, the biggest spread, if, correct me if I'm wrong, the biggest spread were a poll or what we thought the poll looked like in the state and what it turned out to be was, what, six points, five points? It, d- it depends on which polls you look at. If you look at reputable polling, good polling, Wisconsin, uh, you mean in 2016? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where in the tw- state was, where Trump outperformed where we thought it was going in. Wisconsin is probably the 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 best example. Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan are all pretty good examples. I like the Wisconsin example for a couple of reasons. Trump was added about five points, or uh, Clinton was added about five points, and they, you know, the we they stopped polling, we stopped paying attention. It was late. The state was comporting with what it was supposed to do historically, had done since 1988. 
uh, I remember the day that the Marquette University poll came out, had Hillary up five, 10 days from the election. I said, well, that's all she wrote. And what people did not understand, what I did not understand, was this race was going to close late. And in 2016, you had a lot of undecided voters, you had a lot of voters who did not like either Clinton or neither Clinton nor Trump. And they broke for Trump at the end. And Wisconsin is a great example where it wasn't just that the polls were off and they were, but it was that Trump closed late. And he just doesn't have that opportunity this time because he's a known commodity. He's not going to get a big, there's not going to be a big move late because they all know him. Well, but if you're a Biden person and you're in the Biden camp and you're up three in your internals in Pennsylvania, are you feeling good about Pennsylvania or you think Trump could outperform three by four? No, you don't. If you're Biden, you if if you're under five in Pennsylvania, you're not happy, Uh, not just because Trump might outperform, but you might underperform. Or what if voters get complacent? The and what about mail in ballot complications? What about court cases? So they want to be outside of the bounds of litigation. They don't want to just be outside the margin of error. They want to be outside the bounds of litigation. Yeah. And how much do you think these campaigns are preparing for the day after, you know, the fights of, you know, where we have 10 Tallahassee, Florida's 2000, not one. I mean, I think they're hiring up lawyers and having poll watchers. I mean, if you believe what the Trump uh, campaign is saying, they've got 50,000 people on the ground at different polling sites uh, watching this. You started to see a lot of the long lines that you know voters are going early, but also just all of the questions around ballots and what's happening in Pennsylvania and others around some of these states that you can't even start counting ballots until the election day. So I think there's uh, both sides are very well prepared. And I think there's a real expectation that this could could really end up in the court. We'll hear from our panel after this. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. Is there a good way, Matthew, to assess excitement? I mean, we see the lines for Trump events. There's one in Florida that they're they've lined up for a, a day and it's it's similar to what we've seen in other Trump rallies. We see the boat things down in Florida that we saw a golf cart thing in the villages for Joe Biden, which is a, that's a big turnaround for that place. But is there a way in COVID to assess, you know, excitement in this campaign? Well, it's hard. I, and I think uh, for the reason you suggest, which is that a lot of Biden supporters, you know, they're taking the uh, social distancing, the masking uh, very seriously. And um, so they're not going to want to attend a big uh, rally for him. I would say, you know, um, we talk about an enthusiasm gap. That was uh, definitely clear in even in some of the Washington Post state polling uh, prior to the first debate that Trump uh, benefited from an enthusiasm gap. Um, And so if you're the Trump campaign, you want, again, you want the past couple weeks to recede like, like, like Chris suggested, it's in, you want something to happen in the last few days of the campaign that really ignites your supporters. I mean, the Trump base is already uh, ignited and, and wanting to support him, uh, but also gets the kind of the, the voters who may approve of Trump's job performance, right? His job approval has always been higher than his actual ballot number. So you want to get those people who um, are maybe they're, they're they prove of the way he's performed the job, but they're not ready to commit to him. You want them to, to, to vote Trump. 
And uh, so that really comes down to the president not getting in his own way in the final days of the 2020 campaign. You know what I find amazing, Chris, is that, you know, the Joe Biden closing argument really is about coming together. He gives this big speech in Gettysburg about bringing the nation together, healing the soul of the nation. He spends a ton of money on the Cindy McCain ad and airs it in football games and every sporting event. It gets a ton of air, which essentially says he works across the aisle and had friends with Republicans. Um, He, however, is not answering the court packing question, which is just kind of a bizarre thing because it seems like he can't answer it for the left side of his party, but he's not worried about the left side of his party in what he's doing and closing with. He answered the question back in 1987 when he was chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. It just seems like a bizarre twist. He answered it during the primaries, too. Um, I don't know if this is some stupid deal that he made with uh, – Senate Democrats, uh, Senate Democrats about not taking anything off the table until after the Barrett nomination had run or I, I assume in all of these things in politics, you usually find that the truth is much stupider than, than <laughs> you, you think from the outside, from the outside, you're like, what is this complicated thing? You're like, Oh, dumbness. Yeah. Um, I, I assume here that this has something to do with the process of the nomination. And of course, as you point out, the reason Joe Biden doesn't want to talk about what he thinks about court packing isn't because he wants to pack the court. It's because he said he said during the primaries that he wasn't into it. Uh, and he couldn't be clear in his record as an institutionalist and a man of the Senate and all that jazz. So he can't, he doesn't want to say, because if he does, he will say to black voters, particularly, which are his core constituency, here's one less reason to do it. Because we remember there's an inflection point here, which was Barack Obama connecting modern civil rights legislation to the end of the legislative filibuster. And all this stuff is tangled up together. And I don't think he wants to get crossways with those folks. Mm-hmm. And you buy that one. And two, you know, I talked to some people who, you know, they're trying to figure out all these moves, why this is happening. These are just election watchers, people, business people who are um, savvy. They pay attention to things. And they said, what is the deal with Nancy Pelosi's 25th Amendment Commission? It seems like it's less about Donald Trump and more about Joe Biden. (laughs) Buy that? I think it is surprising to me that she's going so hard on this 25th Amendment uh, situation. I think it's clearly not what, it, what the um, leader of the party, Joe Biden, wants to be talking about. I think to your earlier point, I think it's, it's been super awkward to, to have both he and Kamala Harris kind of put themselves into pretzels to not answer what is a seemingly pretty easy question. But I, I think Chris is right. I think it's partly probably to keep his uh, you know senators and, and different kind of supporters in line and that he's going to be a leader of somebody who's been a member of the Senate, doesn't want to get out in front of them. And I also think it is an enthusiasm question around uh, some of the get out the vote, more liberal Democrats who he's clearly not in line with. I think to, to the point on the ads, I think Joe Biden, if elected, is going to come to a very different Washington than the one he left where there isn't a lot of goodwill or people coming across the aisle to join in on legislative issues. And I'm not unclear what he thinks, uh, you know, or why he thinks he's going to be able to change that. Because it, it, the Washington I've been a part of, that you all have been a part of, it is nowhere near the kind of bipartisanship that he likes to, to tell. But in part, the reason that is, is because the leadership never pushed it. I mean, there was not a president who was pushing bipartisanship. 
I mean, you look at President Obama, he didn't even invite Democrats over to the White House. You look at President Trump, he's not working across the aisle on big things unless it benefits him on, on this election, it seems. Matthew, um, again, I think the, the first debate was a missed opportunity for President Trump to kind of let Joe Biden talk himself into circles about appeasing the left, but also closing with bringing the nation together. Uh, but because of how Trump did it, it seemed like he got out, Biden did, of some of those answers. Right. I mean, no one really remembers anything anyone said from that first debate. Yeah. It kind of just, you couldn't make it out amidst all the yelling. Um, but I think, you know, Vice President Pence showed how uh, one could make a case against the Biden-Harris ticket, and that was by kind of sticking to policy and uh, by uh, talking about taxes, by talking about energy, fracking in particular in the, in the Midwest, um, and by talking about the court question. Why, why won't they answer this question? It makes them look silly. It made John Hickenlooper, this Democratic Senate candidate in Colorado, look silly during his debate with Cory Gardner, the incumbent, where Gardner yielded his time uh, to, to Hickenlooper, and Hickenlooper didn't know what to do with it. Um, so there is there is a way to make this policy case against uh, Biden-Harris, um, but we, we're kind of out of that. Uh, the window is closing for making that policy case. It seems to me that the election is coming down to a choice of priorities. If coronavirus is your priority, uh, you're probably going to go with Biden, uh, even though he hasn't done much. Any He's not proposing anything different than Trump has already done, really. Uh, it's just that he is... Uh, modeling uh, behavior in a way that suburban voters in particular approve of. But if you think uh, that the economy, you want the economy to be priority and want to recapture what the economy looked like prior to the coronavirus, I still think Trump has an advantage, even though that advantage may be diminishing. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think that I can't determine what Trump's close is as of yet, but uh, it'll be coming to us soon, I'm sure. Um, Chris, last thing around the horn here, Senate candidates. That's the other big thing, control of the Senate. And, you know, it seems like it's on a knife's edge. I mean, it really does seem like these individual races could cut a number of different ways. North Carolina is kind of up in the air with this uh, Cal Cunningham affair and his inability to answer questions about it. Martha McSally couldn't answer a question in a debate in Arizona about yeah. whether she likes Donald Trump supporting her. I mean, it, it, but each one of these individual races, it seems like, is coming down to that. Yeah, I think the McSally one is 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 pretty telling because she was she became a mega mega 3000x like all the way live and the fact that she balked uh when pressed on whether basically to to praise and thank Trump uh in a debate was just weird beard, right? And I think what it tells you is that for a lot of these candidates, I think Tom Tillis is is the poster child for this which is he, afraid of a primary, embraced Trump in ways that no one expected No one expected that he would have, especially given his vote against Trump on immigration at one point. Um, and now he's just paying this price for it. Now, whether or not Cal Cunningham's uh, uh, weirdo sexts with this married lady will end up costing him, uh, the, the truth is there for all of these guys and gals, which is Trump is looking like a boat anchor right now. What we'll wait to see is 
are we going to see ads and are we going to see a closing argument more so from Republicans in the closing days that says, as you prepare for a Biden presidency, essentially, remember how much we need a Republican Senate to make sure that weird stuff doesn't happen. That's why I think the court packing question is really important for Senate Republicans in terms of prioritizing people's votes. Uh, Matthew, your thoughts, Senate races and where it stands. I mean, right now it's 5347. Republicans are in the hole as far as the number of seats they have up to defend. But, you know, it looks now that it could be 50-50 if you just look at the polling. Yeah. You know, I'm, I think uh, 2016 was the first time where the Senate races went with the winner of the uh, state presidential vote. That is, it just it was a one-to-one one um, fit. So I could see something like that happen again. If your state goes for Biden, if you're an incumbent Republican, you're in trouble. Uh, there, there are some some weird things in this Senate cycle. Um, for one, you have the Doug Jones race, right? So that's probably a Republican pickup there in Alabama. Uh, then you have uh, the South Carolina race, and you have uh, Lindsey Graham uh, in, in real um, trouble, it looks like, against Jamie Harrison's uh, political neophyte raising a ton of money, more money than Beto O'Rourke raised. Um, of course, oh, Beto lost, uh, so Harrison needs to remember that. You also have John James there in uh, Michigan, uh, in the new uh, New York Times-Siena poll of Michigan, uh, shows John James with, within one point of the incumbent Gary Peters. Now, look, am I, are all these kind of, um, is John James going to win? It's probably unlikely. But um, you do have a lot of interesting stories in the Senate cycle that doesn't look very favorable for Republicans overall. Anna, last word. I think what's going to be interesting to see is Will Donald Trump actually help any of these instead of not just be a anchor? What he's talking about on the stimulus and what he's, his message is to voters is really the antithesis of where Senate Republicans are. And so do you see a real divide so far? They have kind of just bit their lip or bit their tongue when they don't agree with what the president does, whether it's on style points or policy. But will that divide become in the next you know, 20 days as they look towards their own political survival does that, does that divide get to be real front and center? That's what I'm watching. Okay, guys, thank you very much. We will talk more as this uh, election comes upon us here shortly. Thank you. October 20th, 1880, a bit of campaign trivia here. A news organization publishes a letter written by Republican presidential nominee James A. Garfield suggesting that he would support, among other things, American business seeking labor outside the United States where they could get it the cheapest. This letter threatened to hurt Garfield's support in his election efforts. However, it was soon discovered by penmanship experts that the letter was a forgery and the addressee of the letter did not exist. The letter scandal shifted what was forecast to be a very uh, likely Republican path uh, to victory to a very close race, with Garfield beating his opponent by less than one percentage point in the popular vote, and more than that in the Electoral College. That'll do it for this week. You can hear more of these series at foxnewspodcast.com wherever you download podcasts. Make sure to leave a rating and review. We want to hear from you. For Anna, Matthew, and Chris, I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time.
I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.